Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's podcast was recorded at ATX Television Festival Season 3. Uh, were you there? You should have been. It was a fantastic time, as it always is, uh, although in this third season, it was even bigger and better than it's been before. Uh, it was just unbelievably fun, uh, and I urge all of you to come on out. They already have the 2015 dates booked, June 4th through 7th. Be there. I will be, for sure. They can't keep me away. Uh, there, were all, there was all kinds of amazing programming, and we're going to give you a taste of what they had to offer over the next few months. So I hope you guys enjoy all of these panels from ATX Television Festival. Go to atxfestival.com for more information about next year's fest. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. All right, well, I've been looking forward to doing this uh, since Caitlin and Emily first told me about it for a variety of reasons, not all of them related to the outrigger question from Lost, but um, please give a big welcome. He has been uh, a giant in the industry for 20-plus for years now, Carlton Cuse. So... The Outrigger. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Yes. Okay. Now, wow. That's, that's like coming out in the first round and then just like, as they're like shaking gloves, just going, wham. <laughs> it's, it's like you're, you're expecting soft stuff. I just, I got to come in when you're not ready for it. All right. Let, let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you were at Harvard and you, how did you get from there to Los Angeles? Um, some... I was really, my, my mom really wanted me to be a doctor, so I went to Harvard as a pre-med, and I started taking pre-med classes, and that just wasn't going well. I really wasn't enjoying it, and my mom, sensing my wavering uh, interest, had me, I have a lot of doctors in my family, so she had me scrubbing with my uncle, uh, thinking that if I was sort of watch the surgery, I would get all fired up. But he was actually doing um, an intestinal bypass operation on an obese person. And we went in, and they were, like, cauterizing all the flesh. And he was pulling all the internal organs out and showing them to me. I didn't realize you could actually do, like, a show, an abdominal show and tell. And um, so I, my vision went... And I fainted. And um, so after hitting that cement floor with my head, what did I want to do? Become a lawyer. Uh, um, and, but, but so then, the, just coincidentally, the filmmakers of this movie Airplane came to Harvard, the Zucker Brothers and Jim Abrams, and I ended up helping set up a screening of the movie. And this sort of light bulb went off in my head. I had never met anybody who um, wrote or directed movies as a living and I thought this movie was hilarious and funny and there was a young guy who was a Harvard grad who had brought them there and I said well how do I get into the film business and he said make a movie and you know I think he was being facetious but I took him very literally and um, when I was in college I rode crew so I thought well, I'll make a documentary about rowing because rowing is this very esoteric sport the people who do it are completely um, uh, you know, it, it becomes kind of all-consuming. All and so, so I made this documentary about rowing. Uh, it was narrated by George Plimpton. I sort of took it as my calling card, and I came out to L.A., and I got a job as the assistant to the head of one of the studios, 
I'm driving around in his car, buying organic dog food for his Japanese Akita, <laughs> getting the windows tinted on his car, getting bagels at a certain shop for him, you know, stuff like that. So, so, but how how did you move from that to like teaming up with Jeffrey Bohm and and the the things that led you to television eventually? Um, yeah, so the short the short buzz of that history is I worked for uh, that guy. Then I went to work for uh, two producers named um, Edgar Sherrick and Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin was being trained by Edgar Sherrick. Scott Rudin now, I'm sure all you all know, is like a mega film producer, uh, Academy Award winning film producer. Um, then I went to work for a producer named Bernard Schwartz and we made a movie. He was getting ready to start him and make a movie called Sweet Dreams. So I spent a year and a half of my life working on this movie from start to finish and that was how I really, that was like my film school. I watched how a movie got made and participated in how a movie got made from start to finish. Um, we were developing some projects, one of which was with a guy named Jeffrey Bohm and he s- said, why don't you come into business with me? And then I went into partnership with with Jeffrey at Warner Brothers and ostensibly we were going to develop our own projects but we ended up um, working on the Lethal Weapon franchise. Jeffrey had done some rewriting on the first movie and then uh, became the writer of the second one and the third one and I worked with him on the development of these stories and screenplays of Lethal Weapon 2, Lethal Weapon 3 and then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and then as a result of working on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Bob Greenblatt who was um, now the chairman of NBC who was then an executive at Fox called me up and said, hey would you be interested in doing something like Indiana Jones for television and I came up with this idea for the, the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. which was a sort of based on the old serials and it was a combination of the two most popular serial genres which were science fiction and westerns. And uh, so we sold that to Fox. Um, and then, you know, kind of right about that, right as, as the project was greenlit, uh, my partnership with Jeffrey split up. He really didn't want to, television wasn't for him. And he went, he went back into movies. And then all of a sudden I found myself with a show to run. I mean, and, and you had worked a little in TV before, but this is, you know, being yeah. thrown into the deep end. Yeah, there was some other parts of my story that were kind of going on in a parallel way. I was also officed right next to a guy named John Sackert Young who created the show China Beach and uh, I was developing a couple of TV movies with him and I would hang out with John's office in John's office and I sort of learned show running by osmosis in a lot of ways because I was there all the time with him and he was running China Beach and the thing that's interesting is that I mean China Beach was a wonderful but not that um, widely seen a show, but every person who worked on China Beach, with the exception of John Sackett Young, pretty much went on to do a show that was a little bit more popular called ER. <laughs> um, the, the number two guy on China Beach, John uh, Wells, became the showrunner of ER. The same director, Rod Holcomb, directed the pilot of both shows, the same casting director, uh, the same writing staff, the same staff directors. I mean, all this whole group of people. And I think Back at that time, there were two new hospital shows that came out, Chicago Hope and ER, and there was a lot of debate about which one was going to be most successful. And they both were successful, but ER was a juggernaut. And I think that the people had, they had this real advantage because, you know, when you make a television show, there's the, the, the traditional model is this crazy thing where you basically, you hire a bunch of writers, you all get put together, and six weeks later, you're supposed to start shooting something. So you take this disparate group of people, you hope you're going to gel, figure it out, and then start making it. But in the case of ER, these people had all been already making a trauma show, except it was set in the 60s in Vietnam. So to 
shift gears and make a trauma show set in a Chicago hospital was not that big a leap. They were all a well-oiled machine, and that was why I think right from the beginning, ER was a great show right out of the box. Okay, but you're... That's, that's, now, now we're doing TV history. <laughs> okay. But in terms of your history, you're doing Briscoe, which is a show that there really wasn't an easy template for. It's, it's a Western, but it's a Western with futuristic or alien technology. You know, No one had really been doing Westerns for about 20, 30 years at that point, and then you're throwing in this added wrinkle, and obviously you have Bruce Campbell to work with, and that's a great resource, but well, how did you put that show together? It was, you know, it's literally unbelievable when I kind of look back. There's certain things that you do. It's like the, um, the, you know, the, the mother who lifts the the car off her child and doesn't know how she actually picked it up. I mean, I kind of we shot. They picked the show up early and it ran late. We did 27 episodes in the first season on a seven day shooting schedule. So, um, which, you know. Most TV shows now shoot on an eight-day schedule, and, and now in the cable universe, people are like, oh, I have to do 13. Um, <laughs> um, can we just do eight? Um, um, so it was, it was this you know, incredible mountain of work. But I don't know. I was just so excited about the opportunity. We shot it on the, Warner's lot, on the Warner Brothers lot. There used to be a Western Street there, which has now been replaced with office towers and this sort of fake suburban street that houses production offices. And um, it was kind of it was actually I was thinking about it a lot because when I started working on the Strain, um, Guillermo del Toro was cutting. Uh, Pacific Rim in this house that was right in the middle of what used to be Laramie Street. Uh, so I was going back to where I f- sort of first started. But at that time, Laramie Street and, and the Western Town w- were used at Warner Brothers for Maverick. And there were kind of a lot of wonderful older, um, like, wranglers and people who had worked on, on Westerns when Westerns were a really popular genre. So we kind of got, I kind of got to work with all these people on the tail end of the, the sort of the era of the Western. And then after Briscoe, they tore down Laramie Street and put up a parking lot. Do you, do you, do you feel much guilt about that? Is this, was this your fault? Briscoe fails, they tear down the street? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't consider Briscoe to have failed. I consider it to um, have been, uh, you know, underviewed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a better way of describing it. <laughs> Which is, I think, a discernible difference. Um, the, you know, we were on Fridays at 8 o'clock, and it was a very sort of um, acerbic, sardonic show. I don't really think the audience for our show, and that's 7 Central, so, I mean, I yeah. just don't think it was... It wasn't really put in a very good time slot. I think if they put it on another night, it could have really, it could have had a long, a much longer life because it seemed to fit into the Fox vernacular at the time. All right. So in in prepara- preparing for this uh, conversation, I reached out to some of your former collaborators with questions of their own. Oh no! Yeah, really? Yep. The the first one comes, uh, <laughs> and th- this one's going to be an ironic question given the questioner. This one comes from Damon Lindelof, Uh-oh. and he wants to know. <laughs> Ask Carlton where the orb came from on Briscoe. He would never tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck you, David. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, that is a really good question. Um, 
<laughs> you know, it, let's just say there was a that there are many precursors to tricky mythology embedded in risk ethic. We carry forward into lost. The, you know, mystery is a healthy element of storytelling, um, and uh, you know, it actually. I, I'm not sure where it came from, but all I know is is that it 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 came via outrigger. <laughs> That's excellent. Okay, so um, your next big thing was Nash Bridges, which my understanding is that Don Johnson had developed it with Hunter S. Thompson because they were neighbors. How, how did you get involved in this? I know, and he, you know, it really is an, it annoys me that Hunter, I mean, that Don kind of says, oh, I created the show with, with Hunter Thompson, which yeah. is, you know, factually incorrect. I am, by the Writers Guild of America, the creator of Nash Bridges. Um, but he basically decided he wanted to go back into television. You know, after the, six, the success of Miami Vice, he had done a bunch of movies, and then he wanted to go back into TV. And so he uh, and Hunter, I guess, were noodling around with some ideas. And he basically, the idea was he was going to go play a private eye in San Francisco. And um, they wrote there were there were a bunch of scripts that were developed, and um, and they shot a presentation, none of which anybody wanted to go forward with and at that point Les Moonves took over as the head of CBS and I had worked with Les at Warner Brothers because he was in charge of Warner Brothers when I was doing Briscoe so he called me up and said I've got this commitment to Don Johnson would you be interested in in you know meeting with him or doing something and I went and I met with Don and I thought he was really charming and funny and I thought well Don you know um, Vice was so dark and nihilistic I love the show but there wasn't any humor and I thought Don was kind of funny and I thought Oh, I can make this work. I know how to actually make create a character for this guy that will be, you know, kind of play into his sort of bad boy reputation. And so I kind of pitched this idea of what if you were playing a cop who sort of got all A's as a cop but sort of was flunking his personal life. And Don responded to that. And then I just went off and wrote a pilot by myself. I came back. Don loved it. And then um, it was the first show that Lost Moon was greenlit at CBS. And we went straight to 13 episodes. And, um, and... Uh, so that was, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the origin of it. And Les and his whole team are still there, so if you get blame for the tearing down of Laramie Street, you get credit for the success of the Les Moonves regime, I think. Okay. I think that's the way it works. <laughs> All right. Um, so one of the notable things about Nash is uh, a number of the writers on that show would go on to have a lot of success. Damon was one of those. Um, Sean Ryan is someone else who I reached out to for a question, and he says, I was always amazed how many of the writers Carlton's hired have gone on to long and productive careers, so how does he choose writers for his shows, and how does he nurture them? Um, yeah, so on, on Nash, I gave first jobs to Sean Ryan, who went on to create The Shield and, and many other shows, and Glenn Mazzara, who went on to do The Walking Dead, and Damon, who went on to do Lost, um, and... Uh, I gave Pam Vise her first drama job, and she's ran one of the CSI franchise for many years. And I, I've actually had a lot of um, success in giving writers, you know, their jobs who've gone on to become showrunners. And um, I, I think it's just one of those things. I, I, I feel like sort of I could in another life have been a really successful baseball scout or something. I can just I can read a script, and I feel like I can tell very quickly what sort of skill set the writer has. And I'm not even sure if I can break it down. A lot of it is just a sort of a visceral emotional reaction to how I read the material. And, um, you know, I've, I've had good success in sort of reading stuff and just saying, oh, this person's got something special. 
Now, uh, I also reached out to Glenn, and he said, do you remember uh, the details of his first pitch meeting with you? Um, probably not the way Glenn remembers that. Okay, uh, the, the way Glenn describes it is he says, I had a panic attack and had to be brought into another room. They almost called 911. <laughs> It's very hard when you have your first pitch meeting with a showrunner, I mean, or your first notes meeting. I mean, the first one I had, I worked very briefly on a show called Crime Story that was, that was, um, it was created by a guy named Chuck Adamson, who was a cop and was Chicago PD, and a guy named David Burke, and it was executive produced by Michael Mann, and I remember going in to have my first notes meeting with Michael Mann, and he was in, he had this bungalow on the Universal lot, and, and everything in it was black, like all the furniture was black, the wall treatment was black, the furniture was black, and he was sitting behind his desk, and because everything was black, and, you know, there were just these little, these sharp pools of light and he was kind of cut with this half light like it looked like he'd been lit by Vittorio Storaro and um, it was scary as shit and he was sitting over there giving me notes and I was like my heart was palpitating and um, so I, I can understand what it's like to be on the other side of that desk uh, but I, I, I think I was nice to Glenn Obviously, he's stuck around a while. He has another question. It's a more serious one. He says, ask about the Nash Bridges episode, Get Bananas, in which Don Johnson had to kiss a chimp. <laughs> you know, when you... This is very emblematic of making network television. Um, when you get to, like, episode... I don't know, that was probably, like, episode 90 or something like that. And you're like, what haven't we done? And... I don't actually even remember how we get around to, like, somebody suddenly in the room is pinching, is pitching a chimp, and then somehow you're, like, going, that's a good idea. And then the next thing you know, you know, there's a chimp on set, and they're giving you directions. Don't look it in the eye, or it'll bite your nose off. And Don Johnson's calling me, like, never fucking send another fucking chimp up here. <laughs> you know? And, you know, um... I mean, there was a certain element of satisfaction in making Don work with a chimp. But, <laughs> but I, I, I know, I, I, that, that is kind of a crazy thing. But literally, you know, and this is, this is why I really love now being in the cable ecosphere. It, you, you are, it, it is, you get there's sort of a moment of desperation in a television season in that sort of range between like episode 15 and 20 or or. or you, you not, can't quite see the finish line. It's, you have to come up with ideas for episodes, and you, you know, you, you will, you will, anything starts to sound really wonderful at that point. <laughs> and I think, I think I remember someone was saying, you know, if you actually look at the box office, Clint Eastwood's biggest movies are with chimps. So <laughs> if we use a chimp, this could actually really be a ratings boom. And I'm like... And, and was it? Do you remember if the numbers went up that week? I think we did well with Get Bananas. <laughs> I have to go back and review the Nielsen's, but uh, I think it was successful. Okay, after this, you went through your, your martial arts period for a little bit. You did martial law with Sammo Hung, a giant of the Hong Kong cinema who spoke very little English. Yes. Uh, he claimed he spoke English. Uh... But he clearly did not speak English, uh, which, you know, you look, I, I, feel, I feel proud about the fact that, you know, he was, and it was kind of crazy because it was, it was like in 1999 and um, 
uh, I, I got an award from um, a organization that was promoting, you know, Asian culture on television, and we had a scene where Sammo kissed a girl, and they said this is the first time that this has happened on network television. It was 1999 that like an Asian, there was an Asian lead kissing a woman on television, and that to me was just like shocking, you know, and. Um, the, uh, you know, but Samo had, he was from Hong Kong, he had an Australian wife, and he claimed that, you know, he spoke English, but he really was learning most of the dialogue phonetically, and so that was challenging, you know, in terms of writing the show, and, you know, it's funny, as a writer, you can become, you can become typecast, so for a window, then I became the martial arts guy, so uh, I was, um, I did that show, and then I worked very briefly on this show that I did not create called Black Sash, which was also a martial arts show. So I decided, well, you know, I should really actually take some martial arts. So I found this guy to, uh, who was a, um, a, you know, a stuntman and um, a martial arts instructor. So I went over there like a few times and just got the living shit beat out of me. And then I decided I probably didn't really need to <laughs> know martial arts to do martial arts shows. All right, so a little after this, you had just signed a new development deal, and then your your old friend Damon starts calling you up about this show he's working on, and he's been abandoned by JJ, and how did you come into this? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, JJ and Damon had written the pilot of Lost, and Damon, um, JJ made it very clear that he was going to leave after the pilot to go to Mission Impossible 3 with Tom Cruise, which was a huge break for him that was going to, you know, kind of launch his movie directing career, and Damon didn't have any show running experience and so he started calling me we had a, like a set call every night where I was giving him advice about how to try to run the show and um, I just fell in love with the material I, he sent me the first couple of scripts I'd seen a rough cut of the pilot and I thought this was really great and I was working at another studio on a franchise and that was just it was kind of miserable like I just I didn't have any passion for it and it was at one of those places where I just decided, so you know that I was going to make a decision based on passion, um, create a passion rather than sort of business logic. And my agent, I said to my agent, you know, I want you to get me out of my overall deal so I can go show run Lost. And he was like, Are you nuts? Like that show is twelve and out, you know, and you're going to have to take a massive cut in pay, and then you're going to be unemployed. And I'm like, you know, I don't care. I, 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 because you know, to me, it, it felt like. I had to do something that I cared about. And I also, I believe in my heart of hearts, actually, that Lost could succeed. I think there were only like, two people who believed that, me and, um, and uh, um, the, uh, the head of ABC before then. Uh, uh, Lloyd Braun. Lloyd Braun. And, you know, Lloyd who had greenlit the show. And, um, and, and I thought, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that's happened is, is that we only make 12 episodes and it becomes this cool DVD that, you know, you can pass around to your friends. And I remember, you know, I was a big fan of shows like The Prisoner, which was like 17 episodes, or Twin Peaks, which was 30 episodes. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not a bad outcome. And I, I've, you know, I think that to do anything really great, you have to risk failing. And so I went in and, and Damon and I were kind of left alone because this new guy, Steve McPherson, had taken over at ABC. And I think that no one over there really believed that the show was going to be successful. So they kind of left us alone. You know, executives don't like, they want to associate themselves with stuff that's going to be successful. And so we just said to ourselves, I said, you know, let's make the show that we want to make, the version that we would want to watch. And 
and that version subverted a lot of the rules of television. You know, we had intentionally ambiguous storytelling. We had this um, huge cast of like 16 series regulars. We had characters who had done really bad things like murder people, which you just didn't do on network television. You didn't have characters with those kinds of backstories. And, and we had very complicated serialized storytelling. And all these things that were supposed to mean the sort of the death of a show were the exact elements that the audience actually embraced. Now, uh, you had these 16 characters. Were there any that, especially early on, you found yourself really gravitating towards, like, I really like writing for Hurley or Sawyer or Jen or somebody? Yeah, I mean, it was very funny because, you know, based on narrative actions, uh, that really determines how an audience feels about characters. So at the very beginning of Lost, like, the lowest testing characters on the show were Jen and Sawyer. Because Sawyer's kind of a dick in the pilot and the first few episodes. And, you know, nobody, so, you know, the, the studio's like, well, nobody likes him. And, and they don't quite associate it with the fact that, well, that's because on a storytelling level, he's, you know, playing a guy who's doing some really, you know, shitty stuff. And, uh, but immediately, I, I really gravitated to writing for, I mean, it's hard for me to do anything without some humor. I mean, there's, I think humor is like one of the unexpected elements in Bates Motel, and um, the so I, I really loved writing for Sawyer. I really loved writing for Hurley. I liked the idea of um, making sure that even though the show was about this, in, this sort of intense experience of these people who were crashed on this island, there was some um, you know levity and heart embedded in it. Uh, now you you came in you know a little early into the first season. You guys are just sort of you're trying to figure out how to run the show. And you're trying to give all these characters backstory and tease out the mythology as you're doing it. Like, I mean, how were you making this work, and how much did you know at that point going through the first season? You know, the first season was like putting out an apartment building fire with a garden hose. I mean, it was just we made 24 hours of the show in the first season, and I, we we knew little tiny bits of the mythology, but basically we were just trying to survive episode to episode. And it was really between the first season and the second season that we sat down and we, you know, really started talking in much more detail about, you know, what the history of this island was, you know, who these other people on the island were going to be, what the, you know, the Dharma Initiative, the Hanzo Foundation, you know, all the sort of deeper mythology was cooked when we weren't under the pressure of having to write next week's script. Um, And, you know, we... You know, we had sort of fundamental ideas like, okay, we knew we were going to, you know, lead to the hatch and that we were going to open season two with the discovery of, you know, Desmond in the hatch. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of it was, was, not, was not painted in. And I think, you know, the, the, um, the creative process is such that I think, you know, when writers say, oh, I have it all figured out when they start, I mean, it just seems like an impossibility. And, um, you know, Stephen, we had... Uh, a meeting with Stephen King fairly early on, and he's like, I make it up as I go along. Like, you can't. That's what you have to do. As a writer, you know, you start telling a story, and the creative process of telling that story leads to, um, you know, all the sort of additional discovery that, that it's, you know, the journey of writing it is actually also the, the journey of discovery that leads you to kind of pick up all the rest of the creative elements that you need to finish telling your story. So in, in our case, we did do some architecture between seasons, but there was also a lot of discovery along the way. Now, you, you mentioned the opening of The Hatch, and that was one of the first times in which you guys had to deal with the fans, be, some of the fans being upset. Like, I wanted to see what was in The Hatch, and over the, the six years of the show, there would be times when people would get 
angry about things, time when, times when people would latch on to things that maybe you didn't necessarily expect to be as big a deal, like maybe the outrigger. Is, was, was, no, was, was, there, was there something in the run of the show that you were most surprised by the audience reaction to? Um, you know, constantly there were things. Like, I, I think I was... I think we were very surprised at the um, incredible reaction to the numbers. I mean, the numbers were something that we, you know, it, it, we thought it was a clever, that it was a kind of a clever gag that would help drive Hurley on this track to go out and find the French woman. And, um, but the, the, just the kind of obsess, obsession with it. I mean, no, we did not know beforehand that they were all like retired Yankee uniforms, you know, I mean. <laughs> um, you know, people's kind of complex mathematical analysis of the numbers was kind of surprising, and you know, so there's certain things that, like, you when you when you do them, you 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 anticipate a reaction, but you can't, you know, you 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 can't quite figure out how people can react. I mean, there definitely are mistakes that we made that we knew that we made. So, like when we introduced Nikki and Paolo, because that was a mistake that we knew before the audience knew. Um, the uh, these were two characters who were sort of in the chorus, and there was a lot of pressure. Like, well, why, why do these people never talk? Like, who are they? They're just floating around in the background. We never hear from them. And so we thought, oh, we'll be clever. We'll show that there were two, two of them. We'll introduce them. And then people were like, they weren't in the background. Why are you having them talk? Why are they taking screen time away from Sawyer and Hurley and um, Jack and Kate? And, uh, and we were like, you're right. So we buried them alive. <laughs> A, a, a friend of mine, Expose, is like either his favorite or his second favorite episode of the show. So there, yeah. there are lovers of Nicky and Palo, or maybe just lovers of watching them be buried alive. Yeah. <laughs> they do exist. Um, the show ended. Um, there, some people loved it. Some people did not. Damon spent basically a year, two years, kind of publicly flogging himself on the Internet, on Twitter, um, you know, going to, going to conventions, just sort of putting himself up on the cross to accept the abuse. Your, your response has seemed much saner than that. You, you've been able to handle it in a more even-keeled way. I mean, I think I felt like there was no, there was no ending of the show that was going to be embraced by 100% of the people. And I think our mantra the entire time we were making the show was to try to be bold and take risks and that that was what we were doing as storytellers. And, and, and I, I think we felt like the ending and sort of doing a spiritual ending was the thing that made sense, that there was no sort of didactic wrapping up of all of the questions. First of all, narratively, it would have been that we, I, we couldn't even imagine what a structure for that would be. Um, and it's also kind of impossible to sort of figure out, well, you know, here's a list of 30 questions, which are the 10 that are most important, and if we answer these, which will be narratively boring, what about the other 20? You know, it, it felt like the real story of the show was not these people were lost on island, but they were sort of lost in their lives, and they were seeking redemption and meaning, and so we attempted to sort of, nothing less than to explain the, you know, their entire spiritual journey, which was a, you know, a, a high bar for the finale. And I feel like a lot of people liked it. I knew there would be people who didn't like it, and I was okay with that. I, and I remain okay with that. Um, you know, I feel like, um, you know, a few people who are haters make a lot of noise. And, you know, I don't think that it's, you know, it's not, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm not going to, you know, sort of succumb to 
the pressure of you know those people because I hear from a lot of people who come up to me or on my Twitter feed saying I really love the the ending of the show and I, I so I you know I accept the good with the bad and I think for a lot of people the show was a satisfying experience I mean you know it's funny because the the finale you know they're, they're you know in whatever sort of reevaluation exists i mean the finale of lost was nominated for uh, an individual writing emmy which is only five episodes of all the drama shows every year get nominated for it so i guess it worked enough for our peers to to make us one of the five nominated episodes the last season of lost was nominated for a best drama emmy which included the finale so you know i think you know i think those were both you know signs signs that there were a lot of people who actually thought what we did was okay Who's on the outrigger? <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening, Alan. It just won't. Forget, right. Even if you Joe Springer me down here on the floor, <laughs> it's not, not going to happen. All right, well, I can ask you a million lost questions, but there's other things to talk about, and, and I'm sure the audience has questions as well. So um, you've sort of now moved into, I guess, what we would call the adaptations phase. You, you did a pilot for The Sixth Gun. Now you're doing Bates, and you're also doing The Strain. Um, how did sort of all these come about? Is it just and The Returned. Yes, and the returned. Yes. So, um, you know, they all came about sort of, you know, in different ways. Um, I, um, you know, I, I after Lost, I started, you know, kind of developing um, a handful of different projects, and you know, you always develop a bunch of stuff because there's a huge failure rate in Hollywood, and you know, I happen to be. Um, you know, in a in a place right now where where my stuff is actually not failing, so I have kind of multiple balls that I'm juggling. Um, you know, Bates came about because two executives at Universal took me to breakfast and said, "We've made a deal with Andy; they want to take our property, Psycho, and do something with it." And so we have this franchise. Is there something that you want to do with that? And my normal process is I just let an idea percolate, and if it actually starts, you know, getting traction in my brain. Then I will pursue it, or, or or if it doesn't, I I won't. And I started just thinking about it, and I I love this idea of the relationship between Norma and Norman. And I felt like if there was there was a way to do the show as kind of a contemporary prequel, that would be that it could be really interesting. That it could sort of be an exploration, a character exploration, but under the psycho moniker. And then I teamed up with Carrie Aaron, who is a wonderful writer, and she had a bunch of ideas, and they kind of were very complimentary, and that was really how that launched. Well, it's funny you mentioned Carrie, because she, is, she has a question for you as well. <laughs> oh, right. my God. Uh, she says, how is uh, Carlton's relationship with his mother reflected in Norman and Norma? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm literally going to go pound on her hotel room door after this. I'm going to kick it down. Um, you know, I think um, I have, you know, I think I learned a lot of my storytelling skills from my mother. My mother is, is um, you know, is still very much uh, alive and kicking. She's in her 80s. She's very vivacious. She's an incredible raconteur. She's a very larger-than-life character. She... Um, you know, I, I was raised by my mom. My father was out of the picture. My mom was, you know, kind of everything in my life. And so I definitely understand that Norman Bates situation of, you know, what it's like to be, you know, raised by a single mom. And, um, you know, uh, uh, my mom is capable of a lot of emotional range. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I you know, I... I <laughs> 
I, I, I love her dearly, and she, you know, and, and as I said, I really, I think through osmosis, I learned a lot about storytelling from, from her because she really is a very funny and engaging person. And so, you know, I think anything that you do that's meaningful as a writer has to kind of come from someplace inside of you. And I think that Carrie also had a, um, you know, a really uh, intense and complicated relationship with her mom. And um, so the two of us shared this common element. And so I think it was very easy for us to, to, um, to kind of reconceive Norma Bates in, and I think for us this idea was, you know, if you watch the original Psycho movie, you, you know, you only see Norma Bates as a stuffed corpse, but the implication is that she was this horrible shrew who just berated her son into becoming crazy and becoming a killer. But in fact, in our version, she really loves her son, and he, the problem is he's kind of got a piece of, he's got a flawed piece of DNA, and um, so his, you know, the she's trying desperately to keep him from becoming the person that he is inevitably going to be. And that just seemed a lot more interesting to us and that the, you know, it was this great tragedy. And, um, you know, the, the thing is you can't go to a network and say, hey, I've got a great tragedy for you. Uh, that just is never a successful pitch. Um, and so this was, but, but putting it under the psycho moniker allowed us to tell the story. And, you know, there are a lot of really good successful tragedies. It worked pretty well for Shakespeare. Uh, it worked pretty well for Jim Cameron in Titanic. I mean, you're, that's the same sort of story. You're hoping against hope that Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet don't meet their inevitable fate. And I think that that's, that dramatic tension is what propels a tragedy, and that's, I think, what we're doing in our show. All right, we're going to move to audience questions in a couple minutes. I, I have a few more. Um, with, with the strains about... You did your homework. That's really I, um, impressive. I, you know, I wanted to live up to you. It was... Um, oh. Okay. The Strain deals with vampires. The Return deals with people coming back from the dead. The, the French version of that has aired domestically, plus ABC has now done Resurrection. So in both cases, you're dealing with subject matters that the TV audience is at least somewhat familiar with. So how are you trying to approach each so that they seem distinctive? I think in the case of The Strain, it, is, it represents a, uh, a real expansion and um, enriching of the wonderful material that was there. Um, you know, the the first book of The Strain is 400 pages. The first 150 pages is the pilot, which Guillermo del Toro directed, and the other 250 pages had to, you know, we turned that into 12 hours of television. So by necessity, that required um, an immense amount of expansion, elaboration, and um, embellishment, uh, changes, new characters. I think you... So they, they feel like they're two distinct and separate experiences. You can read the books, and they're very enjoyable. And but I think the TV show is very much its own thing. And you know, I think that part is I think what's the thing that I love the most about being a showrunner and having sort of an ongoing relationship with the characters in, in a story that you tell is the is the is the kind of organic quality to that. That you know, you start you 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 cast someone and they become your collaborator and then they start doing stuff and then as a writer I spark to that and I'm going like I want to write to that I want to you know and so shows evolve I mean just to give you an example I mean Benjamin Linus came on to do a three episode guest star arc on Lost and we had this in the back of our mind that it would be cool if the guy that these guys captured and held as a prisoner of war in the hatch could be the leader of the others but once we cast Michael Emerson we were we ended up not writing three episodes. We wrote eight episodes that season. Then he became a series regular, and it's hard to imagine, you know, lost without him. But that was there was an organic evolution to that that was just based on us sparking to this character and writing for him. So 
over time, I think you can, you know, I, you, can, you start with something, like in the case of The Returned, I think the show will start in a way that's similar to the French show, but it's got a whole, a whole different cast, and we are going to veer narratively from what they do at a certain point. Um, it reminds me of like the American versus the British version of The Office. You know, they, they again, they started with the same sort of format, but Ricky Gervais and um, Steve Carell are very different guys. And so, and Steve Carell was surrounded by a bunch of different guys. So as it evolved, the American show became very much its own creation. All right, and the last one, um, The Strain is going to be on Sundays at 10. It's going to be opposite a show on HBO called The Leftovers, run by Damon. Uh, I asked Damon how he felt about this, and he said, tell Carlton HBO is letting me have as many vampire dicks as I want. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a response? (laughs) Damn you. Um, That's that's very funny. There's... um, there's a scene. There's a scene early on um, in the strain where, when a character is converting into a vampire, um, he has some astronomical changes, which were, you know, it, it's a little bit harder on FX to deal with that than you could probably do on uh, on HBO. But uh, now I'm really excited about Damon's show, and I think you know it's. I'm very happy we live in the era of, you know, DVRs where people, you know, most people watch shows kind of on their own schedule these days. And uh, I'm really excited to see his show. I think it's going to be super cool. And um, I think there, you know, hopefully is, I mean, I'm not really concerned about the fact that we're going up against each other. I think that, you know, there will be an audience for both shows. All right. Do any of you guys have questions? Right over there. Yeah, um, I'm curious, since you uh, started uh, studying uh, medicine and ended up being a nurse now. Um, Let's not go so far as medicine. I actually like, <laughs> took a chemistry class, a biology class, but don't ask me to come back there and do anything. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, when you came to Hollywood, you said you started as an assistant for a studio head. How much of um, not knowing how you were going to get to where you are now was luck? And how much does the relationship part of things play into it in the beginning? Does someone sit you down and say, this is important, the relationship part of it is important versus, you know, just going on talent? Like, were you kind of faking it or, like, how did that work out for you? Um, you know, I think that there is no sort of set path to success in Hollywood, and I think every single person has a different journey, and they only make sense in hindsight. You know, I, I look back and I go, oh, all these pieces of things all kind of came together in a way that led me to where I am now. But at the time, it felt very random, and I think it's just it's a situation where I think you just have to be opportunistic. You, I think you seize the opportunities you have. I mean, you know... Um, at the time that I did, you know, Black Sash, I went to work on the show. That was an opportunity. It wasn't like, oh, I could, you know, do these seven things. That was the that was the opportunity that was presented to me at that moment, and I tr- I tried to seize that, you know, opportunity. And um, you know, it's not like I haven't had choices in my career, but I think you you're not quite sure what choices you're going to be presented with at any given moment. And so you just make the best decisions that you can. And I think you have to, you know, as I said, I, I, I think I learned a really important lesson when I went to do Lost, which was, you know, the difference between trying, trying to be sort of overly analytical and then and following, you know, your passion. And as a writer, if that's what you are, um, if you're a creative person, I think it's very important that you try to dial into that thing inside yourself that makes you really excited about something and really try to kind of steer yourself towards those choices. And, and inevitably, I think that's 
that, that will work out better for you. The more connected you are creatively to something, I think the better chance you have of succeeding with it. Anyone else back there? You. Hi. Um, obviously, you want the return of the stream and space um, to be successful, but do you crave them to be as successful as lost? Do you think professionally, emotionally, mentally, you could deal with that kind of phenomenon? And conversely, do you find yourself competing against your past you know, I, I, I really don't at all. I mean, I, I think about, like, um, you know, writers who I, I love, like, you know, Hemingway or Steinbeck, and, you know, they wrote really great books, and then they wrote other books that were less successful. There's something kind of wonderful about all of them, and, you know, sort of, as a, as a writer, I would find someone and they just read, you know, all of their stuff. I'd read, you know, all of Vonnegut's books, or read all of John Steinbeck's books, and, and, um, there, it was an enjoyable experience. Yes, you know, maybe more people read East of Eden than, you know, Travels with Charlie, but um, it doesn't mean that the, both of them weren't really good. And I feel like that's the same thing if you're, you know, writing television. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I think Lost was a singular experience. And, and, you know, the confluence of events that happened around Lost and everything like that, I think that's a, that's a once-in-a-career situation. And I deeply appreciate you know everything about that show, but I'm, I you know it's just I'm moving on. I, I see each show as as you know sort of an, another kind of creative child. You know I don't I don't have an expectation for it to be anything other than th the best version of itself. What down there? Hi. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the institutionalized uh, sexism in Hollywood, particularly um, in feature film, and they're talking about TV being friendlier. And as someone who's given a lot of opportunities to women. I think in you know I think television is um, you know really wonderful in a wonderful place right now because I feel like the best dramatic storytelling is happening in television and I think a lot of the you know the best storytellers are women you know I am partnered with Carrie Aaron on Bates Motel she is a fabulous writer I am partnered with a woman named Ryle Tucker who worked on True Blood, who I'm doing The Returned With, who is a fabulous writer. Um, our writing staff on Bates Motel was all female last year. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't really feel it very much in my own ecosphere. Other, you know, all I can say is, is that I, you know, I, you know, I just, I myself have had the great fortune of working with some really talented female writers and, you know, feel blessed for those collaborations, you know. Anyone else? Right over there. Hi. Uh, thank you for the time. This has been really entertaining and informative. Um, you talked about with regards to kind of telling the story you want to tell on Lost and going to that spiritual mode. You know, there's a lot of kind of spirituality and uh, religious elements in the show, and I was just wondering if you got any kind of pushback on that because we don't really see that on, on TV a lot. Um, actually, you know, I, I expected that we would, but we didn't. Um, you know, we, and I think it is interesting because I think, I think you're exactly right. I think spirituality is very underserved on television, and I think it, it tends to be, um, you know, religion and spirituality sort of tend to be lumped into this sort of, you know, kind of right-wing evangelical kind of a group. And I think there are a lot of other people who have, spiritual concerns um, and religious concerns who who 
maybe are afraid to articulate those because they don't want to be lumped in with those other people. And um, you know, I think there's tremendous opportunity on television to um, you know to take advantage of that. It was because it was very interesting because right around the time the Lost finale. Um, happened. Also, Oprah was doing her last couple of shows, and I was really, I was very taken by the fact that, you know, sort of every major movie star in the world was there, you know, with Oprah sort of saying goodbye, and and just how, you know, she is someone who is, you know, I think, you know, probably the, 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 the most successful person on television in sort of promoting, you know, spirituality without it having it be associated with sort of certain ideological Concerns, and I feel like there's I feel like there's more room for that, and I, I you know I, I I feel like the the ending of Lost and the people who like it I think really responded to that as an element. I thought that Rachel Sandler Jr. was one of the most creative and fun and rich characters, and I was one of the fortunate people that actually watched. Thank you. I have a lot of friends that didn't, and I would love to see it brought back for reruns. So is there any chance you can convince somebody to pick it up? Um, you can get the DVDs. They are on, it is on DVD. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. I've, I've always, I've kind of thought on the back of my mind that, you know, at some point somebody will, you know, sort of, you know, dig it up out of the Warner Brothers vaults and, and remake it, and I would actually love that if it happened. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful story arena, and it would be really fun to revisit it. But, I, you know, I you know, currently don't have um, any plans to do it. And, uh, but, you know, maybe in the future. I, that would be really cool. What's left? <laughs> Private eye. <laughs> Private eye. Um, I mean, I I love television. I you know I grew up as I said you know basically um, with with my mom and my brother. I watched a lot of TV when I would come home from school, and I watched sort of everything from The Flying Nun to Gunsmoke to Highway Patrol to you know Medical Center to, you know to you know all the Quinn Martin shows like I so I. I I just love I love television and I love the I love all the range of stories. I mean I you know to me it's it's really more about you know finding really compelling characters and um, and that I think is 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 more important than the genre with which they're in which they're operating. You know I yes the strain is horror but to me the thing that really attracted me about it was the the possibilities of taking. You know this group of characters. You know, played by like Corey Stoll and David Bradley and Mia Maestro and Sean Astin, and just they, it just seemed like there were some really great relationships there, and that um, you know the world was more extreme. But it's it, to me my sort of entry point is always, you know, can I grab onto this character and feel like I can do something interesting with him or her as a writer? Anyone else? Um, you, it's it's definitely hard. 
awesome. Yeah, if, if all three shows are success, you're going to have more hours on the air in a year than you did on either Briscoe or Lost or Nash. Yeah, I mean, I did one year. I had an overlap of... Um, I, there, were, there were two seasons where um, uh, Martial Law and Nash Bridges overlapped. So the first year that I did Martial Law and Nash Bridges, I did 46 episodes of television in one season. And um, that was really really unpleasant um, the, you know the, the, the good thing is is that uh, the strain is 13 the return is 10 um, Bates motel is 10 so and they all, they're, they're not overlapping so right now I am editing the last two episodes of the strain it's basically done I'm starting we start shooting the return on Thursday in Canada and that's 10 and then it will be finished shooting before the strain and baits go back into production. So there's a little bit of hopscotching, which makes it easier. And I'm also working with a lot of really great people, you know. And I think the 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 thing that I feel like I've I've learned, I think the greatest lesson I've learned as a showrunner is is the importance and power of collaboration. I think that you know I teach in the showrunner training program at the Writers Guild, which is a program that exists for emerging writers to learn how to become showrunners and I think that as as a lot of new showrunners really try to do everything themselves and you know television is really innately a collaborative medium and I think that's what I love about it and I think that um, the more you can find a way to use the kind of collective wisdom of all these people that you're working with, you know, on a television show, you know, there's usually about 300 people you're working with and, and empower them to make decisions and to be involved in the creative decision making. I think that makes for a better show. I really believe that, you know, if you can, you know, get everyone engaged and involved, it's, it's, it's better. And so that I feel like, I feel like I'm better at doing that than I was earlier in my career, which I think is also helps with the multiple show situation. Other questions? Yeah, I uh, remember a big part of the experience of just being with Lost was, you know, the podcast you and Damon did, being on the ABC message boards. And I was just wondering how um, just that discourse with the fan base that you guys had, which wasn't that typical for the time, um, how that affected just the process. You know, I think the podcast was sort of the, you know, just pure fun for us. I mean, we did that just because we we loved it, and um, you know, the 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 fans. It's it's kind of there's this conundrum. You know, the fans want to feel like they're participating, but on the other hand, they also want to feel like you know what you're doing, and so those two things are a little contradictory. Plus, at the same time, you know, when we're actually writing the show, we are way ahead of what you're seeing on air. Particularly on a network show, you might be writing an episode, ten episodes ahead of what's actually airing because, you know, you you're, the, the shows are getting chewed up so fast. You have to be that far ahead so that by the end of the season, you're still able to air episodes. So it's like turning around a super tanker. You know, if if you were to pitch me something on a you know, on a question on a podcast, and we were going to go, oh, my God, we should have done that. Like, we might not be able to make that course correction for, you know, a dozen till a dozen episodes later. We did listen to some things the fans said um, and were responsive to them. For some reason, people were obsessed with the fact that Hurley was not losing weight on the island. And, <laughs> uh, you know... But no one seemed to be concerned about the fact that, like, Kate also always looked awesome, you know? That, like, you know, there seemed to be an abundance of health and beauty aids. Um, 
<laughs> so we did a story beat where we had we discovered that Hurley had a secret food stash in the jungle, uh, like a giant tub of of um, super preserved Dharma ranch dressing that <laughs> just never never would go bad, and you could you could put it in any any grub or vegetable you could find on the island. Um, so there were places like that where we were responsive, and we certainly listened to the fan feedback, and it would kind of percolate around as we worked season to season. All right, I believe we have time for one more question. Okay, great. Okay, so um, you guys famously set a end date for Lost. Do you think more shows could do that? Yes. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think it's great. I, you know, the. The, you know, a big influence on that decision for, um, for, for, for Damon and me was J.K. Rowling, who after the first Harry Potter book announced that there were going to be seven books in the series, and it defined the journey. It made the audience really feel that she had a plan, and I think the... Um, I think the audience, like the recent experience of Breaking Bad is, is a perfect example of why more shows should end. You know, as a as a writer, you know, if you're if you're doing CSI, you're going A B C D back to A. You're just sort of cycling through the first letters of the alphabet. If you are doing Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan gets to go all the way to to Z, and that end of the alphabet stuff is fantastic. And as a storyteller, being able to kind of do the kind of concussive, conclusive events that end uh, a narrative is. Is just great, and you know I, I think that um, viewers would love it, and I think writers would love it, and um, you know it's hard though because the networks don't love it because a successful show you know f- uh, floats all the shows that don't work, and so the traditional network model is to just you know make a show run until it sort of you know sort of like a Pony Express, like until the horse drops dead from underneath you, and uh, um, so. Um, but personally, I think I think I think we're moving a little bit more in that direction with limited series. You know, like I think um, the the kind of the compromise may be shows like Fargo or True Detective, where you get a complete arc and yet the show continues and it's rebooted with a different group of characters, but with the same sort of emotional feel. And so I, I really respect you know. True Detective and, and Fargo as, 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 to me, sort of great models of exactly what you're talking about, you know, shows that will have a beginning, middle, and end, and then, but yet still, from a network standpoint, can continue because there'll be another iteration of True Detective. There'll, you know, hopefully be another iteration of uh, Fargo. All right, well, we didn't find out who was on the outrigger, but this has been terrific. <laughs> Carlton Cuse, thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.